0: Hey, folks, welcome to another inebriated past. I'm your host, Matt Chrisman. It's been a minute, huh? We're back with a new wrap. So uh, I've noticed that last year or so, certainly since the Bernie campaign ended, that there's been this renewed interest in uh, John Brown as a historical figure. Uh, there was the Showtime uh, miniseries with Ethan Hawke. Happened last year, which I thought was pretty bad, frankly. But your mileage may vary on that one. But that's been part of a greater desire to talk about this guy, to frankly fetishize this guy, because in a time when it seems like there's no way for anybody to move forward, in a time when it seems like uh, we're caught in in a a ringer of uh, a ratchet of continuing downward political misery, that it's impossible to imagine regular people operating from regular motivations and regular restraints, constraints, uh, acting against it effectively. Uh, We're just too conditioned, it seems like. We take too much wrong for granted. And there's this, I think, nascent idea, this this inchoate yearning for a heroic model. And I think the John Brown fixation is part of that urge. We look to John Brown and we see somebody who is also uh, alive at a time when we had a monstrous, inconceivably monstrous political economic system in the form of slavery uh, that seemed like it was absolutely unchallengeable. And it was at the very heart of the American project. And in this stalemate, in this, broken consensus brown acted with the purity of vision and will and virtue and clarity to cut through the gordian knot by by recognizing exactly what the moment needed to change the nature of the uh, political contest and the stakes that both sides would be bringing to that contest and he was able to do that because he had this positively anachronistic moral vision whereas uh, where he saw he saw like many northern abolitionists did uh, black people as fully human but he didn't just see it the way somebody like maybe William Lloyd Garrison did he felt it and he felt it as a a constant ceaseless uh, pain Uh, that that could only be uh, soothed by acting against the institution that created it. And for him to do that required him to be a a being of almost perfect virtue. And I think we imagine that if we're going to get out of the moment we're in now, we're going to need a resurgence of virtue. Uh, And we're going to need models of virtuous action. Uh, And I think... Frankly, a lot of people look to John Brown because they like to imagine that that's what they would have been like in that moment and that they can apply that WWJBD uh, rubric to their current moment uh, to try to act more virtuously. And I think that that is a totally understandable and commendable urge and I think that everyone should look within to find where they can more readily access their uh, their empathic engine of action, uh, but I think today it'd be more interesting to talk about another figure of the Civil War era, uh, a figure who I think was a force for good in a way that very few people were during the time, uh, as we would you know examine it from the distance of. Of uh, centuries, or a century and a half, I guess, uh, but not, emphatically not, a paragon of v- virtue, emphatically not someone who was from a young age burning with a righteous fire the way that John Brown was. Because the arc of uh, this person, I think, is much more relatable. Uh, to the average person, uh, much more relatable to their lives and their imperfections and and their weaknesses, and also speaks to another crucial ingredient that we're going to need to move forward politically, not just virtue but opportunity, uh, because uh, what we have with the person I'm going to be talking about is someone who was refined towards grace i guess you'd say by experience not by some internal uh moral honing beacon like john brown had uh we're talking about a person who is by any uh, objective measurement a scoundrel uh a, a a person who did not uh obtain with uh bourgeois morality or in fact any other form of uh, conventional ethics, uh, but who also uh, experienced things over the course of his life and had encounters that pushed him in a direction that no matter what it said about his change of heart, uh, made him a person who had a different effect on the world. This has been a hell of a build up to say that today we're talking about general congressman governor benjamin franklin butler otherwise known as the beast sometimes known as spoons a civil war general and politician who took an amazing career arc from being a pre-war pro-slavery democrat a doe face as they were known in the north because he's from massachusetts and became by the end of his life not only a radical Republican, but then beyond that uh, the figurehead of a proto-populist greenback party that endorsed uh, things like women's suffrage and rights for laborers at a time when the bipartisan consensus was fully on the side of capital. So let's talk about how we get from a, a guy who voted for the South's preferred candidate for president in 1860, John Breckinridge to someone who is sponsoring some of the most consequential reconstruction legislation as a radical Republican after the war. So let's talk about the life and times of Benjamin F. Butler, who I feel who represents to me the possibility uh, that are always inherent in any political moment, because what determines our political trajectory Isn't always anything that we can predict. A lot of the times it's things, it's events, it's engagements that occur uh, that shock us and take us by surprise, and that we have to re reckon our understanding of the world around. So, Benjamin Butler, born and uh, raised in New Hampshire, the son of old school Scotch Irish Presbyterians, a grandfather who had fought. In the French and Indian War, a grandfather who had fought uh, with Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans and then became a privateer on the on the West Indian Sea uh, where he died. Uh, later in life, uh, Butler would actually sue a newspaper man for claiming in an in article that his dad had been executed for piracy. He proved in court that his father had been a chartered privateer and had died of uh, typhoid, and so it was, in fact, uh, libel. So young Butler wanted to follow in his family's military tradition uh, and go to West Point, but his strict Baptist mother wanted him to become a minister. So she sent him to college where he uh, annoyed everybody uh, and switched over to uh, a study in law. And he became a young lawyer uh, and democratic speechmaker uh, in Lowell, Massachusetts, which uh, was one of the very first industrial towns in America. Uh, our first real uh, experience in in, uh, in factory economics in America was in Lowell, Massachusetts, where uh, the first domestic textile mills were being built and staffed by armies of young workers, many of them young women, actually. Uh, and this place was a hotbed of uh, both dominant Whig politics among the local elites and, and manufacturers, the people who owned all those mills. They ran this, the town, uh, and they were all Whigs, as most of the leadership of the state of Massachusetts was, Massachusetts being the, the merchant heart of the North, and therefore, the uh, heart of federalism, and then after the death of federalism, the heart of Whiggism, which was its uh, descendant. But there is also a burgeoning working class politics. Uh, it, it's that by necessity uh, and tradition found itself allied with the at that point uh, emerging democracy, the Democratic Party, uh, figure headed by uh, General Jackson, whose father butler had had served with at new orleans uh and and created behind the scenes by the wily fox of kinderhook martin van buren and so butler young lawyer young uh about, begins making appeals on behalf of these uh disenfranchised laborers for a 10-hour day which at the time would have been a reduction from the standard 14-hour day. And so, so this young, successful lawyer who's, who's very uh, effective in court, gets, uh, a, is, is well-known as, as a jurist, he, he plays a double game where he is making a name for himself in democratic politics while advocating for a 10-hour day while also using his uh, lucrative law practice to purchase shares in one of the mills and becoming a a majority owner of a mill, and while the uh, eight, ten hour day campaign failed in the face of the opposition of both the Whigs and the hunker right wing Democrats uh, of the area, Butler did institute the ten hour day at his own factory. So there you go your classic case of ethical capitalism. So from this beginning, Butler makes his way in Massachusetts politics. He becomes a Democratic member of first the House and then the State Senate, of the State House and then the State Senate. Uh, And the whole time he is advocating uh, the slavery issue is emerging as the key conflict point uh, in politics. Now, Butler... In the weeds, uh, in local politics in Lowell, like most northern Democrats, didn't really care about slavery. They thought it was an annoying distraction and something that undermined what should have otherwise been the uh, iron political alliance between the rural south and the laboring north. And so Butler, like many Democrats, was uh, vehemently opposed to abolition, abolitionism, abolition abolition incitement of any kind. He wanted the issue mostly to go away. And so he was one of the faction of northern Democrats fully committed to accommodating the southern position on slavery, on all of the questions of ter- of uh, expanding slavery into territories, Texas, uh, the the territory taken from Mexico after the Mexican-American War. At every point there was a faction of Democrats whose entire instinct was to Let the baby have its bottle. Who really cares about slavery? I care about my local political races, my local patriot networks, my war with the bank or whatever the fuck. And they were known derisively by the uh, more anti-slavery Democrats uh, as dough faces because their faces could be molded like dough because of their lack of principles. The dough faces controlled the Democratic Party all the way in the lead-up to the Civil War, the presidents who precede Lincoln in the White House are a murderer's row of northern doe-faces, Franklin Pierce of uh, New Hampshire, and uh, James Buchanan of Pennsylvania. And Butler was a doe-face's doe-face. When the uh, sectional crisis heats up, thanks to Kansas, thanks to the spark that uh, John Brown helped light, Erupting into a fucking uh inferno there in the prairies by eighteen sixty the Whig party the 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 northern uh the more northern concentrated party of manufacturers uh and and merchants and urban townsfolk basically which was more opposed to slavery because it was more uh middle class and therefore more Concerned about questions of morality, more able to allow their politics to revolve around uh, a abstraction from their life like slavery, they could they could they had the time and energy to care about what was happening uh, in the plantations of the South because their lives were secure uh, in middle class comfort in the North, and as a result of that uh, and growing anti slavery sentiment among uh, yeomen northerners and, and even working-class northerners, that they were going to have to compete with slavery as an economic model and their, and they would not be able to, to maintain their freedom in that situation. Between those two groups, uh, the Whig Party had broken up over slavery. The, the, the small number of southern Whigs who were concentrated in the towns, as you could imagine, uh, and among large capital-intensive plantation industries like uh, Louisiana Sugar were just not enough to overcome the uh, sectional tilt of the party. And it, and it broke up into, essentially, the Republican Party organized around the principle of opposing slavery and the Know-Nothing Party organized around the principle of avoiding sectional conflict by blaming Catholics. Now, the Democrats, because they had more sectional balance, there, the, 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 there was the center of gravity of the party was in the South, uh, but it, there still was a very significant Democratic constituency in the North. So they were able to hold it together a little longer, especially because those doe faces at the helm were just conceding everything to the to the Southerners. And Northern Democratic sentiment was happy to do it because guys like Butler really were the least concerned about slavery you could imagine in this country. But the South kept pushing the issue. The South kept raising the stakes and demanding a further and further codification of slavery as the sort of infinite – they were dead set on establishing slavery as the default uh, political economy for the, the rest of the United States, which at a time when America's entire project was westward-facing, westward and for the south, southern-facing, uh, the south was demanding that all of this ter- ter- territory that was going to be incorporated into the country and determine its destiny would be slave territory that for for many of these uh northerners, that possibility foreclosed the West to them because they didn 't want to have to go compete with slavery or be around black people because they were all incredibly racist so by eighteen sixty the sectional crisis is so uh, overheated, and the working class and and small farmer uh opinion in the among northerners was turning against slavery so hard that the party entered the convention with the southern extremists concentrated in south carolina essentially determined to break open the party because they actually wanted a republican to win so that they could have an excuse to secede which they had all decided long ago was the only rational outcome and only inevitable outcome of the sectional conflict which they were correct about a house divided itself against itself cannot stand. They were going to have to secede at some point and they wanted to pick a point that they thought was advantageous to them. And the Northern Democrats go in allied behind uh Stephen Douglas uh and even though he had been an accommodationist, even he had to like draw a line in the sand just because northern public opinion had pushed had been pushed that much further into uh, hostility to extension of slavery and butler goes there as a delegate and he uh, pledges himself for the first 5 ballots to vote for douglas but then after those ballots go by and the um a candidate has not been chosen and douglas can't get a majority and butler uh is no longer pledged to douglas he notices that the douglas faction is drawing a line, is actually putting its foot down, is is calling the bluff of the Southern faction and sort of daring them to leave. And Butler, who is fully committed to preserving the Union at all costs and doing whatever it took to placate the South to make that happen, decides that he's not going to vote for Douglas anymore. He's going to vote for somebody who wasn't even really in the running, uh, but who he knew personally as a Uh, A virtuous person who, yes, was a Southerner, yes, was a slave-owning planter, but was also a gentleman who had told Butler in confidence that he would not support secession. Uh, And so on the sixth ballot, Butler starts announcing when they come to him that he is voting for Senator Jefferson Davis. So Butler votes for Jefferson Davis on dozens of ballots as they try to get a majority. Eventually the whole thing breaks down. The Northern Democrats nominate Douglas, Southerners nominate a uh a the vice president at the time John C Breckinridge who ran on a maximal southern demand for assurances of slavery's extension into the territories but who also disavowed secession as a as a remedy. So after that happens, butler endorses Breckinridge, runs for governor on the Breckinridge ticket which of course got a fract a handful of votes because by this point northern opinion is fully set and the republicans sweep the north uh, especially massachusetts which was the eastern headquarters of republicanism so the country is at war butler's doe face butt kissery has failed in its goal The South is taking their toys and leaving. What is he to do? Well, like many Northern Democrats who went down to the wire insisting that the South needed to be placated at any cost, once the secession happens, snap to and affirm their commitment to the Union. Because for a guy like Butler, unlike the Southerners, the point of their political collaboration. The reason that guys like Butler collaborated with the South is because they wanted uh, to succeed politically within the framework of the United States, which they uh, thought was the proper expression of America's political uh, will. They believed its ideology, and there was nothing in conflict between its power and their pursuit of power within its structures. For the Southerners, for the Southern Democrats— uh, the Union was always a convenience. The Union was useful to the extent that it allowed slavery to persist because slavery slavery was the political economic foundation of a separate ident- a, a separate political entity. It was formerly part of the United States, but it had never been it had never been assimilated that assimilation had been resisted all through American history. The Constitution was created explicitly to prevent the assimilation of the of, of slave agriculture uh, into the greater American political project. And so when the South decides that they're going to destroy the Union, guys like Butler, this is not a dis- difficult question. The point of kissing you people's ass about slavery was to keep America going, to keep uh, a, po- a political coalition together that could seize power. What the fuck are you doing? In fact, you're blowing it for us. Now every Democrat... Looks like a fucking traitor, you assholes! Uh, And so Butler snaps to immediately goes to work getting himself a commission in the army, Uh, and he he had been uh, a commander of a uh, civil militia unit, sort of like a proto national guard thing uh, before the war, which is very common among prominent citizens uh, in in small towns, being like the militia commander is sort of like being chief of the jcs or the the elks club or something and they'd get together and march around and stuff uh so but he and he had but he had never gone to west point and he had no formal political he had no formal military training uh and so he doesn't really have any uh claim to the office but uh he does have connections to the Democratic Party and one of those and some of those Democrats were being integrated into the Republican Party and and, and into government one of them was the Secretary of War Simon Cameron and Cameron intercedes to get the governor of Massachusetts who is a Republican who hated Butler uh, a commission as as a Brigadier General so he's commissioned as a Brigadier General but he doesn't have any troops so what Butler does is he uses his connections to a local bank, which he'd made in all of his wheelings and dealings uh, as a milk owner and lawyer, uh, to advance uh, credit to the state to fund a militia company with the express proviso that Butler be the commander. And so the governor is basically stuck with him. So Butler is put in command of troops who are initially put in charge of occupying Baltimore because Maryland at the point, uh was a slave state but the states that were close the slave states that were closest to uh the Mason Dixon line uh did not secede generally uh because more than anything they were too close to the military power of the United States to pull off the creation of a parallel uh, governmental structure and military the way that states were able to in the deeper south so even though there were tons of pro, there's tons of pro-slavery sentiment in Maryland, uh, and especially in the city of Baltimore, uh, Maryland never seceded, in part because U.S. troops occupied it from the second that the conflict began. And uh, that meant that Butler was sent to Baltimore to uh, assert U.S authority over a, a, a very hostile region. So Butler uh, occupies Baltimore throws down a heavy hand on these motherfuckers, which is going to be his signature. If, if we're going to have a war, then God damn it, God damn it fine. We're going to have a war, and we're going to win. Uh, and so that gets him the enmity of uh, the press for being uh, overly harsh with his martial law. And he started already at that point getting a reputation in the South as a particularly savage Yankee. Butler... Uh, lays the smack down in Maryland and for a time in delaware uh, and even and in delaware though interestingly enough, you see how at this point Butler is really still willing to uh, really meet the the slave owner owners halfway when he gets to delaware and the terrified planter elite tell him that they th- that there 's a, a slave uprising that 's in the works and that they 're all going to get massacred and that they 're all afraid that the Union Army is there to help the slaves, and Butler reassures them by sending out troops. There is no insurgent, there is no insurrection, nothing happens. Uh, but he he does a little demonstration for their benefit, which got him criticized by Northern Republicans. Uh, so he's getting it from both ends here. But uh, Butler goes to Virginia, where he shows that he is, in fact, yes, an amateur at war. He bungles a couple of battles. He starts getting criticized. He starts getting into arguments with other generals about who's responsible for what. uh, And he's making enemies. While he's in Virginia, though, uh, and occupying Fort Monroe, Butler first encounters runaway slaves in large numbers because as soon as the uh, local plantations here that uh, Union troops are in the area, uh, enslaved people from the surrounding areas start making their way to the Union lines, seeking what they think will be freedom. Now, it had been the policy of the U.S. government at this point, wherever they encountered uh, runaways like that, was to return them to their masters. Because at this point, it's not a war against slavery. It's a war against treason. It's a war against disunion. And they don't want to raise the social stakes. And Butler, though faced with this military exigency, uh, decides using his legal mind. Well, you know, so these guys claim that uh, that this is their property, and that it's my responsibility to give it back to them. But they also claim that they seceded from the country that I represent, and that therefore I have no authority. I have no authority over them, and vice versa. So they have no right to ask for anything. And Butler determines these refugee slaves to be contraband of war, which uh, means that they are on the same level as as like bales of cotton or provisions that would be seized from an enemy. But this really solved a problem that the United States government really didn't have a solution for at that point because the, the, the existing system really wasn't working uh and it, it and it was getting more and more absurd i mean you're literally you you are aiding the enemy if you have to return slaves who have run away from uh at, behind enemy lines and so butler without having to worry about the political repercussions the way that uh lincoln or someone would just says unilaterally all right uh you guys if you make it to the lines you're free uh and here's here's uh here's a paycheck <clears throat> we need you to uh, drive a wagon, we need you to uh dig ditches, but we will be paying you for it and providing you with housing and food in a, instead of not doing that <laughs> and This ruffles feathers in Washington too because it 's not something that had been signed up for, nothing that had been uh, decided in state but it was it was a- re- it was a response to conditions is what it was and uh and it made give Butler his first encounter with uh, uh Black people in any large numbers. Uh, so Butler, for a few months, goes back to Massachusetts to raise more troops, uh, and he gets into a big fight with the state governor because he wants to he wants to recruit an all face regiment. He wants to get a regiment that is entirely made up of both uh, Protestant and Catholic American Democrats who had opposed the Republicans to the end. Uh, guys like him because he wanted to prove their uh loyalty and the governor who is a uh who is a absolutely hyper partisan republican uh the governor John Andrew uh doesn't want that they have they have a big fight over uh over who gets to appoint officers and so after having this a slap fight with the governor of Massachusetts over who is going to uh make up his Uh, who is going to make up this uh, military unit, he is uh, assigned to command the troops who will be attacking New Orleans with uh, Admiral Farragut. Uh, And so he steams down to New Orleans where uh, Farragut dams the torpedoes, goes full speed ahead, conquers the city, uh, and Butler becomes the military governor of New Orleans. And And he does that occupation duty and uh this is in May of eight, uh, 1862 he takes command in New Orleans and the people there are really fucking pissed they hate this yankee invasion they are restive the day of the uh con- the day that they took the city a mob led by a local gambling uh a local gambling impresario in, in named William Mumford tore down the flag the American flag that was hoisted above the uh, customs house and uh, tore it up, dragged it in the streets, uh, and handed it out pieces out to people. Uh, and according to Butler, he uh, when he heard about it, he said, "I'll see the man who did that hanged." Uh, and he fucking did it. He actually did it. It took him a while, but uh, he found and executed a guy for tearing down the American flag. The entire time they were, they were running up to the uh, moment of it occurring, everyone in town assumed he wouldn't do it. There were ro- mobs in the streets demanding that he be released. Uh, everyone assumed that it would just be too monstrous and too incendiary an act for him to carry out. Uh, and everyone asked for clemency. And then the day of the hanging, Mo- Mumford gave an impassioned speech about his patriotism and how he did what he, he felt what he did was right You know, some real uh, Sidney Carton stuff. And everyone turned to Butler, assuming that he would give the glad hand and say, all right, never mind. Don't do it again. But instead, he just does the fucking communist thumbs down and they hang the motherfucker. And it causes outrage not only throughout the South, but in the North and in Europe. Uh, And in fact, uh, the Confederate government of Jefferson Davis, who he voted for at the convention in 1860, put a ten thousand dollar price on his head that he if he was to be captured he'd be executed and it, and anyone who uh, brought him in would get ten grand <clears throat> he also issued an order after a number of a high society Dianes of New Orleans showed their ladylike nature by spitting on uh, and attacking uh, the occupation troops who by virtue of the social mores of the time, were restrained from responding. Uh, An incident that culminated with Admiral Farragut getting a chamber pot dumped on his head from a balcony led Butler to issue Special Order 28, which said that any woman in the city who did not show proper courtesy to an American soldier would be treated, quote, as a woman of the town plying her avocation, which is Victorian for walking the streets meaning that they could uh be disrespectful in their treatment in return and in fact may even arrest them and it instantly caused a a huge furor and outrage all across the south and even across the atlantic butler was denounced in parliament by the prime minister lord palmerston for his crude and unchivalrous behavior but butler Pointed out the rest of his life, there were no more spitting incidents. The ladies treated his troops with respect because they didn't want to see themselves brought low because they were fancy, uh, rich ladies with parasols. So it wasn't just a heavy hand, though. Butler also did a heroic job uh, with sanitation uh, and introduced a strict quarantine and uh, garbage disposal process that significantly reduced yellow fever in the city, which was largely a a military exigency because uh, Union troops are from New England and the the Northeast, Northwest. uh, They don't really have exposure to those tropical diseases. And a lot of the Confederates were sort of just hoping that the entire garrison would just die off of yellow fever the way that the Leclerc expedition did in Haiti. Uh, So Butler, to avoid that, made sure that the rivers ran clear. And it saved a bunch of lives. But that did not make the local uh, elites happy. They hated him. Not only did he, in addition to these outrages, he censored newspapers. Uh, he seized a tremendous amount of cotton uh, from local uh, producers that he claimed was going to be smuggled, uh, uh, often without evidence. Uh, he actually then would have this cotton auctioned off with the proceeds going to the military occupation, uh, and he had his brother, Andrew Jackson Butler, who, who, was, uh, also, who was also an officer in New Orleans, bid secretly for them and get them at super low prices and then sell them on the open market. So he's hustling. He is a hustler. He's confiscating personal property that he claims is, is en route to being smuggled. That's how he gets the nickname Spoons because he was accused to have stolen a set of fine china or a, uh, a set of fine silverware from uh, a, a aristocratic New Orleans lady. Uh, they hated him so much that they put his picture on the bottom of chamber pots so that they could literally shit in his face. Uh, the other nickname they gave him was Beast because he was he was a perfect example of the brutal ungentlemanliness of Yankee culture. Like He was the avatar of everything that Southern gentility was supposed to defend against. Uh, They really did feel in the South that they were protecting a way of life around a uh, a manner that involved personal honor and personal propriety as presiding ethics. Of course, they could do that because it was all built on top of literal human misery. And what else are you going to do but sit in your fucking... Uh, sit in your fucking veranda and figure out ways to feel vaguely uncomfortable. It's your only fucking option. And so a guy like Butler coming down and just laying the smack down without sentimentality, without any respect for chivalric codes, he was a one-man representation of what commerce did to you, what being a, a merchant, what working, uh, what dealing with capital will do to you. But thanks to all these conflicts, he's getting uh, a lot of making enemies in Washington, partially with the Secretary of State, William Seward, because one of the things he does to cause problems is that he seizes uh, money from consuls, from foreign consuls in New Orleans, claiming that it was money that was going to be smuggled across enemy lines. And this causes diplomatic incidents. And also he is now become very unpopular with the Democratic press, his own party. They now have decided that he is, in fact, as much of a demon as the traitorous slave calls him. The only people who were applauding his behavior and his occupation of New Orleans were radical Republicans. These people, who they fucking loved him. They thought he was a hero. And after uh, Butler's enemies get him recalled from command of New Orleans in december of 1862 when butler gets back to the north he finds huge crowds of republicans thronging him he finds his name scandalized and slandered in the copperhead democratic press his erstwhile comrades so butler decides you know what fuck those guys i'm a republican because these guys get me so uh butler after coming back north he gets back in command he goes back to uh, he goes back to Virginia, where he recruits uh, units made of Confederate prisoners of war. These there were a lot of them during the Civil War. People, guys who were uh, were taken prisoner and then joined Union military units. A lot of them were uh, a lot of them were the upcountry hill people who generally were hostile to the entire Confederacy uh, and were just kind of waiting for an opportunity to switch sides. Uh, And so these guys were called galvanized Yankees. Like they had been electrocuted into conversion or um, they'd been converted by electricity. And Butler raises a unit of these guys. And during the Petersburg campaign, Butler is put in command of a number of black military units. Uh, He had actually organized a a integrated black militia into the Union Army uh, when he was in command of New Orleans. He had raised units of black troops in Louisiana when he'd been in command there, and then in Virginia he was put uh, in command of more black troops. Uh, And during the Petersburg campaign, uh, he commanded black troops in the Battle of Chaffin's Farm, which is also known as New Market Heights. And there's a speech that Butler gave when he was shepherding the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1875 through Congress, which was the last gasp effort to codify uh, civil, uh, civic equality in terms of access to public accommodations for uh, black people uh, in the waning days of Reconstruction. And Butler was the house manager of that bill. And he described uh, the Battle of New Market Heights uh, in his speech and then later in his autobiography. Uh, Then I said, your cry when you charge will be, remember Fort Pillow, and as the sun rose up in the heavens, the order was given forward, and they marched forward, steadily as if on a parade, went down the hill across the marsh, and as they got into the brook, they came into range of the enemy's fire, which vigorously opened upon them. They broke a little as they forded the brooks, and the column wavered. It was at a moment of intensest anxiety, but they formed again as they reached the firm ground, marching steadily on with closed ranks under the enemy's fire, until the head of the column reached the first line of abatis, some 150 yards from the enemy's works. Then the axemen ran to the front to outweigh the heavy obstructions of defense, while 1,000 men of the enemy, with their artillery concentrated, poured from the redoubt a heavy fire upon the head of the column, hardly wider than the clerk's desk. The axemen went down under that murderous fire. Other strong hands grasped the axe their, in their stead, and the is cut away. Again, at double-quick, the column goes forward to within 50 yards of the fort to meet there another line of abatis. The column halts, and there a very fire of hell is pouring upon them. The abatis resists and holds. The head of the column seems literally to melt away under the rain of shot and shell. The flags of the leading regiments go down, but a brave black hand seizes the colors. They are up again and wave their starry light over the storm of battle. Again, the Axemen fall. But strong hands and willing hearts seize the heavy, sharpened tree and drag them away. And the column rushes forward. And with a shout which now rings in my ear, go over that redoubt like a flash. And the enemy never stopped running for four miles. It became my painful duty, sir, to follow in the track of that charging column. And there, in a space not wider than the clerk's desk and 300 yards long, lay the dead bodies of 543 of my colored comrades. "'Fallen in defense of their country, who had offered up their lives to uphold its flag and its honor as a willing sacrifice. "'And as I rode along among them, guiding my horse this way and that, lest he should profane with his hooves what seemed to me the sacred dead. "'And as I looked on their bronzed faces, upturned in the shining sun to heaven, as if in mute appeal against the wrongs of the country for which they had given their lives,' and whose flag had only been to them a flag of stripes on which no star of glory had ever shone for them, feeling I had wronged them in the past and believing what was the future of my country to them, among my dead comrades, there I swore to myself a solemn oath. May my right hand forget its cunning and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I ever fail to defend the rights of these men who have given their blood for me and my country this day, and for their race forever. And God helping me, I will keep that oath. Now, did he mean that? He was a politician, after all. He was giving a speech in the well of Congress. He was trying to rile up the hoopleheads. heads. Demagoguery about Reconstruction and about the honored dead of the war was a a time-honored, cynical practice of post-war Republican politicians. They called it Waving the Bloody Shirt. Uh, Benjamin Butler was a master of Waving the Bloody Shirt. In fact, he literally invented Waving the Bloody Shirt. Uh, So maybe he was just demagoguing and using uh, emotive language to make a point. Sure. But when you look at what happened after that, Butler runs for Congress as a Republican uh, in 1866 in opposition to presidential reconstruction, which was a uh, attempt to basically try to reestablish the pre-war economic order in the South with slavery, formal slavery replaced by de jure slavery. And Butler ran for Congress as a Republican opposed to that, and he spent the next decade in Congress fighting to make reconstruction as putative to the South and its political leadership as possible, while also pushing as far as possible, for the extension of the protection of rights to former slaves in the South. Uh, After Thaddeus Stevens died, which he unfortunately did uh, early in Reconstruction, Butler became the single most prominent advocate for black civil rights uh, in Congress. He managed the failed impeachment of uh, Andrew Johnson uh, in the, the Senate he shepherded through uh legislation like the like the Ku Klux Klan Act which authorized the federal government to uh detain night riders and to protect the lives and liberties of former slaves uh he was absolutely willing to bring down the hammer of authority on this the planter rule who rulers in, in defense of uh black rights even if it was simply due to personal vindictiveness because these were the motherfuckers who tried to shoot at him and called him the beast and put a contract out on his head even if it was just because of spite the outcome was that he was one of the most prominent champions of 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 a meaningful reconstruction that emerged during that period and what i mean by that is not just that he was Uh, the foremost man in defense of black civil rights and black equality. One of the bills that he pushed through was an attempt to create uh, desegregated public institutions in the 1870s. And it was passed in a watered down and unenforceable form, uh, but then ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1883. But in addition to that, Butler also pushed for hmm, uh, creating an economic model that could have allowed that to happen. Because this fundamental conflict at the heart of Reconstruction is that the Republican Party that had ended slavery also was organized around free trade liberal principles that demanded tight money uh, and, and powerful financial institutions. There was a hard money, a gold standard orthodoxy among Republicans who had authorized uh, fiat currency greenbacks during the war as a war measure to get back onto the gold standard as quickly as possible because that's what business wanted. That's what the, the banks in London wanted. That's what Northern Capital, which had accumulated significant uh, power and influence and coordination over the course of the war, wanted. They wanted tight money. They wanted U.S. Be- uh, US debt paid back in gold and not in uh, fiat currency. They wanted the monetary uh, supply to be shrunk. Well that's a recipe for deflation that's a recipe for misery at the base of society. And what the republican policy on money did was doom all the efforts in reconstruction that could have made it economically viable because the south went the entire united states government the entire united states uh, economy went into deep depression in the 1870s that it didn't leave for a generation and it was even worse in the south. And a large reason for that was because of tight credit and northern republican orthodoxy was for tight credit even guys like charles sumner who were maximalists on uh on the moral question of equality in his case he didn't really know or care anything about economics and so his all his friends in uh boston tell him that hard money is good and so he was for it butler was a greenbacker butler said as soon as he got to congress what are you people talking about print the money we print the money that's what do we we'll just watch? We just won a war by printing money. We have a war to fight now against the remnant of slavery. Let's fight it with the same money we've been printing. And this put him at war with the Republican Party. And so his term in office is this uh, quixotic attempt, on the one hand, to create a uh, a fiscal stimulus that could have allowed for a flowering of economic activity in the South perhaps organized around redistributing uh, planter land to smallholders, both black and white. And maybe that makes acceptance of the uh, socially destabilizing um, equality enactments more palatable to people. We'll never know because the southern economy was strangled basically in its crib after the war by hard money. And among Republicans, uh, Butler was one of the very few to have that vision uh, because what you have after the Civil War is uh, what with, the, with the organizing pr- uh, principle of slavery, which had defined political boundaries in the generation leading up to the war, gone, the, uh, the parties had to find a new basis for existence, and the Republican Party being, as it was, based primarily among that urban middle class who opposed slavery on moral grounds but who were direct and indirect beneficiaries of the capitalist mode of production that, that, that was emerging. And it had no interest in seeing economic power, as in control of capital, closer to the hands of regular people. Because while greenbackism isn't, of course, socialism, in this context when the American labor movement is in cohate, unorganized, and the political system doesn't really have a vocabulary for socialism within it, Greenbackism becomes the stand-in for that impulse towards common ownership of capital, just in the American vocabulary. And it is a tragedy of American history that America's class politics does not gain coherence in time to be wedded to that, to be wedded to the uh, Reconstruction Project, for example. And Butler ends up becoming a greenbacker. He runs for governor a number of times in Massachusetts on a fusion Democrat greenback ticket and eventually wins. He gets one term as uh, governor of Massachusetts, one two-year term before uh, the Republicans gather steam, get their shit back together and beat him out of office after obstructing the hell out of him. And then he ran as a greenback candidate for president in 1884. While he's, losing the, the, uh, while he's losing the governorship, he runs for president on the tickets of the Greenback Party and the uh, Anti-Monopoly Party after challenging Grover Cleveland for the Democratic nomination and uh, failing to secure it. Uh, he doesn't get a lot of votes. He only gets 175,000 votes of the 10 million cast in 1884. But he articulates within his political person the third way, the way not taken out of the conflagration of the Civil War, because you see after the Civil War, the Democratic Party cohere into a party of urban machine politics and southern white reaction, uh, accommodating capitalism from like the, the precarious position, and the Republicans become the party of finance capital, uh, and that... That the death of slavery becomes, in retrospect, uh, just part of the project of capital rationalizing human interactions, uh, getting rid of these, these inefficient quasi-feudal structures and replacing them with liberal contract relationships. And that was what a lot of the people who uh, made up the Republican Party had always sought. But Butler, who didn't start the war as a Republican, who actually fought the war, and had experiences during that war, and encountered things the experience of of the war that, that Butler had fused the poli- the, the populist politics he had he'd had as a member of the democracy before the war to a greater understanding that the natural extension of his politics then back then the thing he really cared about was embodied in a full civic civically equal society where uh, there is no caste or class, and that that facilitation of that comes from the uh, liberation uh, of the people from actual bondage, be it slavery or wage slavery, and that is a that is a thread. It's a golden thread ideologically that runs through the Civil War, and very few people of power uh, organized around it. Because there was no real uh, percentage in it. All of the power and influence went in the other directions. And it was the lonely few who stood out there. And Butler was one of them. Now, part of it might have been because he had a real change of heart over the course of his life. and uh, And it made him into a more, you know, empathic person. But the thing we have to remember is that while he's doing all of this, he's also being cartoonishly fucking crooked he is a a, as i said an absolute an absolute spoilsman and corruption machine oh he's a one-man machine the guy like i said he fucking uh he sold he auctioned off seized cotton uh to his own brother to sell on the fucking black market he uh he was a war profiteer the he made sure that the military uniforms that he uh Of his units were manufactured, were 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 spun at his mill. He manipulated uh, uh, government policy to aid his business interests. He one of the things that he defended in the Republican Party to his death was the corrupt system of spoils and political patronage that uh, replaced ideology as the motive force of the party. So he was the tool. He was the Janus face of corruption and. and virtue. But of course, in this period, corruption is just part of politics. Corruption is what the machine is made to do. The, the hard money uh, orthodoxy of the post war years was a product of corruption. Capital bought the government and they dictated their own terms. That was corruption. The stuff that Butler did, while well, it is grubbier and more purse, and it uh, offends one's uh, bourgeois sensibilities. Uh, is not anyway less moral than what is carried out above board, and it is a person like Butler, who has seen the whole range of of experiences, to see the essential hypocrisy here, to see the hypocrisy of people who cried about him executing one guy in New Orleans, who turn up their nose at the massacre of hundreds of uh, former slaves who are now. American citizens, and who will allow the U.S. government to massacre every striker in town but would refuse to uh, allow black rights to be protected at bayonet point in the South. It is someone, it is a crook, it's It's someone from the ground up, it's someone disabused of bourgeois sensibil- sensitivities who sees through that. But who knows what was in his heart? What we know is that the experience of the war created a place for him to be through incentives internal and external a place for him to be and hey he uh he was the damn governor of uh of Massachusetts he ran for president he he authored vital civil rights legislation that's a real person that's a real that's a real possibility that existed with all the other possibilities during uh that period and the real thing that kills me personally is that he had a possibility to have way more impact than he did, because in 1864, uh, Butler was offered the vice presidency on the ticket with Abraham Lincoln. Hannibal Hamlin uh, was not going to be the VP again, and they wanted a war Democrat. They wanted someone as a uh, someone to represent the Democratic part of the coalition that made up the Republicans, because uh, the Republican. Campaign in uh, 64 was fixated on the idea of making the war effort uh, deep uh, nonpartisan. So they even dissolved as a party and ran as the National Union ticket. They didn't even use the word Republican on the ticket. And part of that was extending an olive branch to the Democrats. And their first call was to Butler. And Butler said, fuck you, I don't want to sit on my ass in Washington uh, For four years, that's not going to make me any money. I'm out here ripping and running and fucking bawling. Why would I want to do that? And then they go to another war Democrat and a Southerner in this case, Andrew Johnson, Uh, one of the worst political decisions ever made. And after Lincoln's assassination, Johnson personally steers Reconstruction in the most reactionary way possible. And most damagingly, he not only fails to enact land redistribution to former enslaved people, he has his fucking army break up concentrations of uh, black land ownership where it had occurred, where military, where military rule, like Sherman's ceding of the Sea Islands to uh, former slaves as a, uh, as a way, uh, slave refugees as a way to reduce his, uh, his overhead on his march to the sea. They were breaking up and, and, and confiscated. That land was confiscated. Uh, because Johnson wanted to reinstitute white supremacy. I got to believe that Butler in the seat in 1865 uh, uh, after Lincoln's assassination with the blood of Lincoln still wet on his top hat would not only have uh, protected and sanctified uh, land redistribution where it had occurred, he would have extended it and he would have, absolutely brought the fucking hammer of Thor down on the fucking Confederate leadership. Nobody get it, Nobody's getting their fucking uh, voting rights back after asking nicely, after writing a letter to the president, which is what Andrew Johnson had them do. He had the large, the big men of Southern uh, planter society who'd rebelled against the federal government write him letters asking to be pardoned, and he would. None of that for Butler, I can assure you. And for me, the the value of, of of thinking about a guy like butler and, and thinking about the context and and about the possibilities that are always there in any moment no matter how retrospectively doomed all goodness seems is to remember that that's always true which means it's true now which means that all possibilities are live in the moment because look at this guy look at look at how how does this happen when you consider what most Northern Democrats did after the war during and after the war become copy copperhead reactionaries who, by the end of the of the war were actually rooting against the fucking United States and then after the war uh became just absolutely vile racial uh demagogues uh, The Northern Democratic Party put out hair raisingly racist shit during reconstruction and Butler was part of that machine before the war and many people went out and fought and came back and did the same thing and he didn't which means it can be done and means that our destinies are always live all right folks i think i hope that made sense if it didn't i hope that chris chopped out the parts that didn't and you got something that is somehow uh, audibly legible bye bye